Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Beth Dunn is away this week, but I've got a series of related stories about the housing crisis in our region, and town meeting season continues apace, and we'll get you ready for things happening in Chatham and Harwich. Will David is here with his exclusive WOMR Weekend Weather Outlook, and Ira Wood has a matter of opinion about a very unnatural selection for selectmen. The select board in the town of Chatham has signed a letter in support of a bill on Beacon Hill crafted by their counterparts in Provincetown and Nantucket that would allow localities to purchase deed restrictions to preserve year-round housing units. Filed by State Senator Julian Sear, the bill aims to preserve housing stock for year-round residents who earn too much to qualify for subsidized housing, but not enough to compete with buyers with deep pockets who are looking for vacation homes. Modeled after a successful program in Vail, Colorado, the legislation has the support of State Representative Sarah Peake and won the unanimous endorsement of the Cape and Islands Municipal Leadership Association. With affordable housing programs already in place to help people who earn up to 80% of the area median income, or about $61,000 for an individual, there's a serious need to help working people bridge the gap between what they earn and what the housing market demands. Chatham Select Board member Shereen Davis said the result is the displacement of households making $100,000 or less, which is the bulk of the workforce. According to a recent study, almost half of the Cape's workforce live over the bridges. The situation extends to the Outer Cape, where many people commute from the other side of the Orleans Rotary to get to work. The bill making its way through the State House would add a year-round housing occupancy restriction category to other land-use restrictions that are on the books, like those for historical, agricultural, and conservation lands. The legislation would allow deed restrictions on properties without restrictions based on an occupant's income. If the bill passes, individual communities would then craft their own bylaws and develop systems for purchasing the deed restrictions. In broad terms, if an owner of a home wants to see that it stays year-round, there would be a program that would allow towns to pay a certain amount of money to put that restriction on that home. The Chatham Select Board voted unanimously to send a letter to the legislative chairs of the Joint Committee on Housing, asking them to vote to advance the bill. Meeting as part of the town's Affordable Housing Trust Tuesday, the Chatham Select Board heard an update on the possible housing developments being considered for the former Buckley property at 1533 Main Street and the former Diocese of Fall Riverland on Meeting House Road. Housing proposals for those properties were the subject of two public forums and a survey. Survey respondents polled about the Buckley land were shown four housing types and asked to voice their preferences. The highest-ranked concept involved townhouses that could accommodate about 25 units in two, four, and five-unit buildings with parking. 
Other options involve detached cottages, which would involve more buildings, or apartment buildings, which could accommodate more units. Similar options were offered for the Meeting House Road site, with 25 units in townhouses or cottages, or 50 units in apartments. The type of housing chosen for the site also hinges in part on the financial feasibility of the project. Because of how the land purchases were funded, a minimum of 25% of the units on the Buckley property must be made available to people who meet federal low-income requirements, and all of the units on the Meeting House Road land must meet those standards. That means that developers will be seeking government subsidies to defray the project costs. While Chatham has a focus on creating attainable housing for working people who earn up to 200% of the area median income, there aren't really subsidy programs for that. The severity of the situation is highlighted by the fact that for housing to be attainable, a resident needs to earn as much as 200% of the area median income. Harwich voters will be asked in the annual town meeting to amend that town's accessory dwelling bylaw, eliminating lot square footage requirements for units in the various zoning districts in town. The Harwich Planning Board voted on March 28th to recommend adoption of the amendment at the May 1st town meeting. When the ADU zoning regulation was established, the minimum lot size provision made it impractical and no new units were created, said former selectman Ed McManus. The proposed amendment would also increase the maximum floor space for an accessory apartment from 900 to 1,000 square feet and limit an ADU to two bedrooms. The planning board approved its recommendation for adoption unanimously. Selectmen on Monday also voted unanimously to recommend the ADU amendment be adopted. Also in Harwich, on a split vote, the Community Preservation Committee reconsidered its funding recommendation for the Affordable Housing Trust and agreed to increase the amount from $250,000 to $500,000. The vote came after the Board of Selectmen voted recently to ask the Community Preservation Committee to reconsider its initial recommendation. Selectman Mary Anderson told the committee last Thursday that there has been dysfunction within the trust, but the board has taken steps to fix the issues. She highlighted the change in selectman representation on the trust from selectman Donald Howell to selectman Larry Ballantyne, calling Ballantyne smart, well-spoken, and someone who focuses on the issues. Anderson emphasized the trust's need to have money should housing development opportunities become available. The CPC members voted 6-2 to two to recommend to town meeting that $500,000 in Community Preservation Act funds be provided to the Affordable Housing Trust. Engineers from the municipal contractor Weston and Sampson told the Provincetown Select Board on March 27th that the town had three options for rebuilding the Veterans Memorial Community Center into a newer municipal building and new housing. They would cost between $36 million and $72 million. But their top recommendation was to renovate the building instead of replacing it and make room for housing on a small parking lot on the property for around $6.6 million. 
The Weston and Sampson presentation concluded the first phase of a study town meeting authorized a year ago to determine how best to redevelop the VMCC and its surrounding parking lots to meet needs for both housing and municipal space. The $6.6 million plan would include the renovations to the VMCC building, but not the eventual cost of a housing project at the former parking lot. The other three options presented by the consultants all involved bulldozing the existing community center, home of the Council on Aging, the Recreation Department, the Department of Public Works, and the Provincetown Schools kindergarten classrooms. The select board was enthusiastic about building housing on the northwest parking lot, a project that would not affect the VMCC at all and could move forward relatively quickly. Town manager Alex Morse pointed out that the report included a current use analysis of the VMCC that found the building was well used by residents of all ages, from senior citizens to the town's early childhood program. The town's building committee also spoke with Weston and Sampson's engineers and with town departments that work at the VMCC. Their conclusion was that relocating departments from the building during construction would be very difficult and that the building itself was in reasonable shape for continued use. The Orleans Select Board will make another attempt next month at adopting a rental registration bylaw but board members last week said they still saw room for some fine-tuning. Article 54 on the warrant for the upcoming annual town meeting on May 8th seeks the adoption of a bylaw that would require all rental properties in Orleans to be registered with the town each year. Last fall, an article seeking to establish a bylaw applying only to seasonal rental properties failed to pass a special town meeting vote. Some opponents argued that property owners who rent seasonally were being unfairly singled out. The select board decided to move ahead with a revised bylaw covering all rental activity in town. According to language in the article, the goal of the bylaw is to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the occupants of residential rental units by requiring the registration of rental properties. Increased attention has been paid to the issue of rental safety in recent months, following a fatal apartment fire on Route 6A in March that resulted in the death of a six-year-old child. An inspection conducted after the fire by the town's building department found numerous violations, among them illegal bedrooms and disabled smoke detectors. Under the revised bylaw, property owners would be required to submit a registration certification form annually to the town assessor's office in order to rent their property. It also asks for the number of working smoke and carbon monoxide detectors on the property. While the select board initially attached a registration fee to the initial bylaw put forward in October, there is no registration fee attached to the draft going before voters next month. But during the select board's April 5th meeting, board member Mark Matheson addressed potential problems with enforcement, an issue that stalled the bylaw's last iteration. Specifically, he said the bylaw lacks clarity regarding follow-up inspections and how property owners are going to be held accountable for rectifying issues when found in violation. The select board voted 5-0 to zero on April 5th to recommend approval of the article, but Matheson said the language in the bylaw needs to be tightened up ahead of the annual town meeting if the article is going to sway the voters. 
The Truro Select Board voted on March 28th to replace the damaged culvert currently restricting tidal flow into Mill Pond with an 8-by-8-foot box culvert. Department of Public Works Director Jared Cabral and the town's water resources consultant Scott Horsley had recommended a 95-foot-wide breach in the roadway that would produce a 10-foot-wide opening at sea level and greater tidal mixing in the pond. The town's engineering contractors had presented four choices, two of which involved culverts that would leave the road open to traffic. The other two included breaches that would close the road to vehicles. The breach plans met with pushback from Truro residents who expressed concerns about safety and traffic. Cynthia Conroy put an article on the warrant for Truro's upcoming town meeting, asking the select board not to close the road, and an online petition garnered over 1,400 signatures for a similar request. After 34 years as a journalist, Casey Myers has resigned from the staff of the Provincetown Independent, where she's worked since its founding in 2019, to become Director of Communications for Barnstable County Sheriff Donna Buckley. Buckley narrowly defeated Republican Tim Whalen in November in a Democratic Party sweep of county election races. Her campaign emphasized improving mental health and substance abuse treatment for people caught up in the criminal justice system. Myers is known for her stories about the CAPE's opioid addiction crisis and other health and social justice issues. Myers, who lives in Wellfleet, started her career in 1989 as a reporter for the Provincetown Advocate, then worked at the Cape Codder before moving to the Cape Cod Times in 1995. After 23 years at the Times, she was named editor of the Provincetown Banner in January of 2018. She became a senior reporter for The Independent in September of 2019, shortly after the new Outer Cape Weekly was launched and she was promoted to managing editor in February of 2022. Myers said her tentative start date in her new job in Bourne is April 24th. Her annual salary will be $107,000. She was making $58,000 at the newspaper. Publisher Teresa Parker said that Myers is not just a stellar reporter, but also an invaluable newsroom colleague who mentored younger writers. It's sad news for independent journalism on Cape Cod, but we wish Casey the best in her new endeavor. Town meeting in Chatham takes place on Saturday, May 6th, the first scheduled under a revised bylaw that gives the select board the option of when to set the date. During the pandemic, town meetings were held on Saturdays under state emergency provisions. In deciding to permanently shift the meeting from Mondays to Saturdays, officials were heeding advice from the Chatham 365 task force that suggested the date would attract more working people. The session, which begins at 9.30 a.m. in the gym at Monomoy Middle School on Kroll Road, will also be the first town meeting in Chatham to feature electronic voting. Attendees will be able to press a green button for yes or a red button for no during votes that require a hand count rather than holding up voter cards, as has been the tradition for decades. Expect a few practice votes before the meeting formally begins. 
three of the 59 articles will also be subject to subsequent ballot questions at the May 11th annual town election, including financing for a new Center for Active Living. Article 18 requests to borrow over $10 million to build a new Center for Active Living, formerly known as the Senior Center, on land at 1610 Main Street. This will be the second time the proposal has come before town meeting. In 2021, a new senior center at the location received a majority vote, but fell short of the two-thirds required for the financing. The cost increased by $2 million in the meantime, and the plans for the 11,000-square-foot facility were tweaked slightly to provide space for senior daycare. Approval of the funding will once again require a two-thirds majority vote. The select board backs the measure unanimously, while the finance committee's vote in support was 6-2. to two. Should the article pass, voters will be asked in Article 20 to declare the current Center for Active Living building on Stony Hill Road surplus so that it can be converted to affordable or attainable housing. Other housing-related articles on the warrant include the transfer of a property on Stepping Stones Road, that was formerly under the jurisdiction of the Monomoy Regional School Committee for affordable or attainable housing. Article 23 seeks the same for former Water Department property on Old Harbor Road. Both require a two-thirds vote. Child care is available for ages 3 and up beginning at 9 a.m. at the Middle School Library, and you can see copies of the warrant at the town's website. And finally today, Brittany Taylor has been appointed as the new director of Brewster Ladies Library. Instead of putting the final touches on Provincetown's upcoming Moby Dick Marathon, the former assistant director of the Provincetown Public Library stepped into a full week of meeting her new co-workers and hosting events at the Brewster Library. Taylor will be managing seven full-time and five part-time employees, and with the help of Lauren Elliott Grunes, 185 friends of the Brewster Ladies Library. Born and raised in Orleans, Taylor attended Orleans Elementary, Nauset Middle, and Nauset Regional High School. She graduated from Vermont's Middlebury College with a degree in English with a concentration in library sciences. After college, she started as a circulation aide at the Provincetown Library. Over the next eight years, she handled tech and member services and was promoted to assistant and then interim director. Congratulations to Brittany Taylor on taking the next big step in her career and best wishes on her success at the Brewster Ladies Library. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. This is meteorologist Will David with your weekly weather watch and temperature trend for the Outer Cape. Our preview of early summer will soon be a distant memory as a backdoor cold front and two areas of low pressure begin to impact the local area this weekend and much of next week. This afternoon, a backdoor front will slide down the coast, turning our winds onshore with significantly cooler air by late afternoon and early evening. Meanwhile, low pressure over the mid-Atlantic will combine with low pressure over the Midwest and eventually stall across New York and New England. This will bring an increasing chance of showers to the Outer Cape late this weekend 
and especially early next week. The 126th running of the Boston Marathon, the weather now looks cool and showery as runners encounter an ocean headwind. In the upper levels, a trough of low pressure will park itself over the eastern Great Lakes, something that's fairly common in early to mid-April. The unsettled weather will linger through about Wednesday morning before the low weakens and loses its grip on the local area. But the pattern overall will be active with frequent fronts keeping New England and the Outer Cape cooler than average. In the long term, we'll see a few mild days, but there are no strong signals for any extended warm spell, at least over the next couple of weeks. Elsewhere across the nation, one of the areas of low pressure impacting our weather early next week is the same one that brought a one in a thousand year flood to Broward County in South Florida. The storm responsible for this epic rainfall was the one I talked about last week over the northern Gulf of Mexico. Over two feet of rain fell in less than 10 hours in Fort Lauderdale. And even though that deep tropical moisture has moved out, an unstable atmosphere could lead to more showers and thunderstorms this weekend. Another storm with origins on the west coast will move eastward, bringing strong to severe storms this weekend from Missouri to the deep south. On the colder side, everything from heavy rain and flooding to heavy wet snow is likely. In fact, parts of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan that are still basking in the 80s could be in for a wild mid-April snowstorm this weekend. And finally, the first 2023 hurricane season forecast was released by Colorado State University yesterday. And as anticipated, they're calling for a slightly below average season, but cautioning that a larger than normal uncertainty exists. They anticipate the current neutral phase of the El Nino Southern Oscillation, or ENSO, will transition to an El Nino this summer and fall, but it's still unclear as to how strong the El Nino will be. A strong El Nino would create wind shear across the tropical Atlantic and a hostile environment that could prevent storms from forming. That's good news. But if the El Nino is weak, the sea surface temperatures in the tropical Atlantic are much warmer than average, and these warm ocean waters could offset any of El Nino's inhibiting effects. Whatever happens, we all know that it takes only one major landfalling storm to make it a busy, memorable, and God forbid, tragic season. Now my exclusive WOMR weekend weather forecast for the Outer Cape. This afternoon, mostly sunny with near record warmth, but turning much cooler as winds turn onshore during the afternoon and early evening. Midday high 75 to 80, falling into the 50s by late afternoon or early evening. Tonight, partly cloudy, lows around 48. Saturday, mostly cloudy and much cooler, back to reality with highs around 52. Sunday, mostly cloudy and cool with a good chance of showers, highs around 54. As always, stay safe and informed by keeping an eye to the sky and an ear to the radio. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. I'm Weather Will. In almost every town on the Cape right now, people are running for selectmen. Most of us don't have a clue who to vote for and think of it as a popularity contest or just picking a pig in a poke or the lesser of various evils. I get it. When I first ran, I was a very 
unnatural selection for selectmen in Old Cape Cod. A frizzy-haired hippie, an anti-war activist from the People's Republic of Cambridge, and an unknown novelist, I knew nothing about the town. Moreover, with no kids in the schools, no actual job, no boat, or even a local dealer that I bought pot from, I knew hardly anyone at all. I spent my days at the computer and my nights at the library. But one night, wandering accidentally into the room where the selectmen met, my world changed. I got hooked. I became a regular because the stories I busted my butt making up every day just couldn't compare to the reality I saw unfolding in front of my eyes. There was the most miserable misanthropic hermit in town, demanding a guarantee that if she collapsed in her kitchen, only those chosen members of the rescue squad whose names she taped to her screen door would be granted permission to resuscitate her. There was the man who complained about being arrested for shooting his friend in the foot when his friend insisted he didn't mind being shot, and the mother who refused to come down from the tree in front of town hall because the police ordered her kids not to climb it. I became a regular. You could not make this stuff up. My presence did not go unnoticed. I was considered a fresh young face. The fact that I washed it and shaved it was a big plus, as was the fact that nobody could actually place it. An election was approaching, and in due course, I was summoned to a meeting of the town's power brokers, a dozen retired old businessmen in their 80s, whose politics were so wildly dissimilar that they would never remain in the same room if they weren't too deaf to hear what each other was saying. I told them I was flattered, but there was no way I could run. I had no organization, no base of support, no grasp of the issues, no vision, and no knowledge of town government. No problem, they said. Everybody else, they asked, had turned them down. I was one of five candidates in a race for two open seats. The serious competition, a local Sunday school teacher and a native-born fisherman from one of the oldest families in town. My sole advantage was the fact that the town population had swelled with a huge influx of suburban retirees, dismissed as wash-ashores, insulted at town meetings, resented by the local town folk. They embraced me as a heartwarming reminder of back home, the Jewish kid with an afro who smoked pot with their own kids in the basement. As to the issues... I was advised to avoid them and concentrate on the one strength that differentiated me from all the other candidates, an unctuous desperation to be liked. And it turned out no voters actually cared what I thought, only that I shut up and listened to what they thought, a strategy antithetical to the Sunday school teachers who viewed 
every voter's question as an opportunity to give a sanctimonious lecture and whose every answer sounded like a warning that Jesus was watching to see if you washed your hands after using the potty. The fisherman was armed with statistics about the dangers presented by all the new people who had moved into town. But this only pissed off all the new people who had moved into town, while the attitude of the older townies was summed up by one old guy who said, All that you say may be right, but your family was a bunch of idiots, and I don't think the apple falls far from the tree. In the end, I was elected by a huge margin and served four terms. I can't say I did a great job, but I studied every issue that came my way. I attended all my meetings sober and always at least tried to be kind, which is all I ever hope from a candidate when I enter the voting booth. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Will David and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Jacob Greenberg and Henry and Jane Fisher for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Stirred Not Shaken with Hank and Andy on listener-supported Outermost Community Radio, WOMR.